Hello and welcome to the first episode of Radio Free Zion. Uh, we've got Austin and Connor today. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Bitcoin Files on TikTok. Uh, that's tiktok.com slash T-H-E-B-I-T-C-O-I-N-F-I-L-E-S. Uh, they do a bunch of financial analysis on all sorts of things, not just related to crypto, but especially crypto. Uh, so go check out the Bitcoin Files on TikTok. This episode is also brought to you by Zencaster. Zencaster is the way that we record this podcast, despite the fact that we are in remote locations. Um, so Zencaster.com allows you to record video and audio separately on separate computers, and then it splices them together, uh, makes it easy to have both files so you can have much higher quality than you would recording a Zoom call. So check out Zencaster.com, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. And last but not least, and I am genuinely unsure if this is a joke or not, but regardless, um, goatrental.com, G-O-A-T, as in Kanye West, rental.com. Uh, apparently, it's a site that allows you to rent goats uh, to keep your grass down. Again, 50-50 on whether this is real or not. There, there's just enough there that I'm, I can't definitely say it's a parody. Uh, one way or another, um, this episode of... Radio Free Zion is brought to you by GoatRental.com. My flavor flav. We'll, we'll at least have the footage in of me putting this on. Yeah, you should definitely wear the flavor flav. I don't know why you were. Yeah. Well, because I was just reading the Daily Ring, and they were talking about you know, like uh, something like. Secure your house, like don't fill it with gold and jade or something. Um, but this is <laughs> amazing not to, yeah. Yeah, anyways. Is that an astrolabe? Yeah, it's an actual functional astrolabe, a brass astrolabe. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, like, you know, this would be an amazing chain. So I'm going to just throw this on. And, Got it. Uh, so the chain came separate. It wasn't an astrolabe. Flavor Flav necklace. Oh, no, I didn't like have like a, a jeweler. No, no, I just got this astrolabe off of, you know, the internet and like, yeah, I can like <laughs> navigate with it. You know, it's all in Arabic. It's great. Do you know how to navigate with an astrolabe? Could you actually functionally use it? I'm going to be honest. I, I don't even know what it does. I just know that um, it's a symbol for real research. I mean, uh, my Arabic is definitely not good enough to like read this, these inscriptions. Um, and uh well the short answer is just no um I, I've, been meaning, <laughs> I've been meaning to for a while but like basically you you have to recognize the stars like the the various um you know constellations that are immediately above you and then i believe it's it's basically like a an ancient gps system and so you like figure out like where where the sun is rising what the sort of various constellations are you map this stuff up and then you can do all sorts of crazy things like figure out where Mecca is or like what time you should pray or that kind of stuff or like, you know, how to sort of navigate the globe. That's oh, man. Like uh, Magellan's a lot cooler than Justin Bieber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I thought that was just a Connorism. Oh, no, no. That's, a, that's an Alex Jonesism. That's a uh, uh, there's an am amazing rant that someone sent me once and they were saying like this could be an advertisement for rome and um it was alex jones completely losing his mind talking about how magellan is a lot cooler than justin Bieber, and <laughs> just you know like how like 
physics, science, discovery, the world is teeming with sure opportunity. Yeah, great. but I didn't, I didn't I pick up that I've probably part. shown it to you at our house, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, how does it make you feel that I hear Alex Jones and I ask, is that is that yours, Connor? Is that, does that come mm-hmm. from you? Um, I think Alex Jones, listen, I've, I've said this before, <laughs> um, you know, uh, like, or the, there was some great back and forth, you know, between Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel talking about um, where, you know, Bezos was talking about how contrarian Peter Thiel is and, you know, how contrarians are usually wrong. And, you know, Peter was like, when I'm, yeah, but when I'm right, I'm really right. And I, I definitely feel like that's the case for me. I also feel like that's a hundred percent the case for Alex Jones. Like, you yeah. know. Uh, he's really like, wrong sometimes and then sometimes like i mean to give him credit the jeffrey epstein stuff he called like 10 years ago and was like yeah. ranting about and everybody's like dude you're crazy um, of course and of course that comes with you know him ranting about sandy hook and people saying yeah you're crazy and being totally right uh yeah for but, sure you know for sure. i mean but that's the thing is like <laughs> i mean you know uh pg has that essay on like the risk of discovery and how you know uh Newton spent about equal proportions on his three major projects, which were like a heretical kind of Mormon-esque, you know, he was a, uh, yeah, I mean, it it was right. Like the, the claim that, you know, Jesus was, I I, I think it's called Arianism. Like Jesus was not the same entity as God or the creator God. Um, there was like some sort of difference between those two. It was like a major heresy that he was like, you know, parsing the Bible for and spending a ton of time on that. And then alchemy and, alchemy. and like alchemy and physics and, you know, and Newtonian physics. They, yeah. They all, they all looked equally weird at the time. So um, that is just the cost. I think that it, I think it does reflect the broader problem we have about um, which, which maybe we can dive into a bit later is like when the world's so complicated that, you know, the last man who knew everything lived in the 1700s. Right. And like, we do have to defer to other people in, in order to like, like, we just don't have the time and attention to be able to understand everything deeply. So you have to figure out who mm-hmm. you trust. Um, the unfortunate side effect is that people expect that, you know, if someone has does one thing wrong, it should invalidate all of their credibility, right? We can't independently separate out, which makes it much harder to. And vice versa, right? Early. Like yeah. one, one of the things that's most interesting about Twitter to me is you'll see people that are absolute geniuses in one facet of their life say the stupidest stuff in another facet. And well, yeah, I'm sure myself me, so. included, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but like, it, it, I know. That's just, the cost of thing you allowed, right? Like, you right. know, a, a, uh, I, I liked, I heard someone say recently, like, um, you know, the reason speech is free is because if it costs anything, it'd be way too expensive for us to have any good ideas, you know, like we have to say so much garbage in order to actually figure out and convene on truth that like, you know, free speech is, uh, and I, I thought, I don't know. I like the idea of free is I mean, that's beer. Yeah, I, I read a, yeah, I read a study once that was like the, you know, the amount of smut that was published after uh, Gutenberg created the printing press, you know, was orders and orders of magnitude higher than it ever had been. Because previously, yeah. it's pretty much monks writing stuff and printing a book costs. There were a ton of monk pornography. Yeah, the monk <laughs> pornography <laughs> intersection was smaller than the uh, yeah. printing press pornography um, intersection. Yeah, but net net, I mean, I don't think any of us would rationally say we would, you know, go back to a world without the printing press. And I think you know we're seeing a microcosm of that hey, now yeah. with the internet. Like, 
Yeah. The, the amount of crazy that's on Twitter is probably orders of magnitude more than the amount of crazy that was written in books 25 years ago. Uh, but the amount of genius that you have kind of at arm's length is also higher as a result. So you have to, yep. you have to take those trade-offs. Um, yep. Well, I don't, I don't lever I don't it up. That. I think, I think the whole idea of technology is that te the point of technology is to figure out ways around trade-offs actually like situations where the, the status quo says that there is a hardcore trade-off between the A and B. And, you know, if you want to solve that, you do have to kind of, go meta on it and figure out, can we get some of the benefits of A without the consequences of B? And it is a, like new science and new breakthroughs do allow you to get benefits without trade-offs. Just look at birth control. Sure. Well, <laughs> you, yes, there's new trade-offs introduced every time. There's new trade-offs always introduced, right? But sure. like you, you can overcome the original trade-off that, you know, the technology is designed to solve for. So. In, in some I mean, instances, I, I think like I, there's still humans are still humans, right? And so if yeah. you know if a communication product, the if if the goal of a communication product is to get what humans are thinking and feeling and doing out into the public, like I don't know that you can control that. I mean, th you know, thinking about Facebook and Reddit and Twitter trying to battle misinformation, like you can take you know, very hard line stances on some specific things. Um, but I like, all right. Anyway, this I think is, we've already, I think humans, we've already now gotten to human. the place. Hold on. We've gotten to the place right here where, um, uh, you know, I, I spent a few minutes collecting some things from my backlinks in Rome, um, before the call, but like, there are a couple quotes that I, I had pulled up that might be relevant here. And I think one just did. Right. So this one's from okay. Michael Nielsen. Um, who uh, is done a bunch of stuff with Andy Matushik. Um, he was a, a physicist. Doesn't, doesn't, you probably know him through YC. But he has this book that I love um, called Reinventing Discovery and talking about this idea of network science. And here's one quote that I'd like to, which is, um, the challenge in scaling up collaboration is that each participant has only a limited amount of attention to devote to the collaboration. The lim that limits the volume of contributions to the collaboration that any one participant can pay attention to. Um, to scale up collaboration while respecting the limitation, online tools must establish an architecture of attention that directs participants' attention where it is best suited. That is where they will have maximal competitive, like comparative advantage. Um, yeah, I, I, I could I could go on and I probably will in a bit, but like that's what you know. Twitter's tried to do this with algorithms. Facebook's tried to do this with algorithms because if you follow a thousand people, you know, like you now have a thousand tweets here and it's all entirely opaque to us as end users. Um, but like they're, they're trying to give you the content that is the best and they're shadow banning people who they think are, you know, uh, like polluting the commons. It's somewhat, um, you know, an authoritarian approach. Like algorithms are not human systems. They don't handle nebulosity super well. And we can talk about that more too. Like it's hard to program into ones and zeros human values. Um, and I'd prefer to be able to like more have a more sort of a fine grained way of controlling my, my feeds and uh, you know, how I, how I pay attention to things on the internet, but like, like TikTok's innovation, you know, was a particular way of trying to get in a, a more optimal feed to maximize its addictive potential um, or, you know, entertainment value or time on site or whatever. But like, yeah, like, like these systems already, we, we've been having, the problem of information overwhelm since at least, you know, 
Vannevar Bush wrote As We May Think, which sort of sparked the whole you know, <laughs> decades and decades later, it became the personal computing revolution and all this stuff. But like, you know, we are, even if we were just dealing with books, there are way more books published than a person. Every day, there's more words published in books in the traditional format than you can read in your lifetime. So sure. even if it wasn't Twitter adding some noise in, you know, there's always going to be noise. But I do think that we can find better ways to filter our attention. And that's kind of also what runs about. But well, and, and you're, like you, you said you wanted to chat about that stuff. So no, yeah, you, you referred to the the follow mechanism as if it was, you know, a, a truism that had already existed. That was really, you know, a broad strokes swat at like, how can we limit information to the people that you, I mean, so and the feed was its own first too, right? The feed right. and the follow are both innovations. Whatever algorithms they're applying to give you the default feed is the innovation. TikTok's way of like introducing people with no followers to the general for you page and sort of like, a B testing the success of every video to decide, okay, if it does well with a hundred random people, we'll show it to a thousand random people, then we'll show it to a hundred thousand. Like all of those things are yeah. innovations I mean, around it's attention Reddit allocation. But, slash hacker yeah. news upvoting, downvoting, you've got um yeah, I mean even even the concept of a friend, right, was really like I, yep. we we don't think of it that way now because there wasn't, it wasn't like there was a friend feed to it that it already existed. It, you know, that's how it, it came into existence. But if you talk to folks at early Facebook, the concept of a feed versus a wall, which now I think it's built into so many different products. Like yep. it was highly controversial, a whole lot of yeah. Facebook and, you know, to, to Zuck's credit, there are, you know, I know a bunch of early people at Facebook, there are a bunch of stuff that he tried to do and was adamant about and pounded the table that ended up being totally wrong. But this one, you know, the, the notion of a feed um, was one of like, from what I've heard at least. So maybe that's second or third hand, but came directly from Zuckerberg himself and him saying, I want to feed and people saying that doesn't make sense. And him saying, we'll make it make sense. Cause I'm the CEO. And now it's yeah. like, I mean, you, so there is, you can't there is imagine the internet without the concept of feeds. You know, for sure. I mean, there are two two branches we could go down there, or we could keep moving. But like, one is that uh, the mandate may have come from Zuck. The idea clearly was it you know had a precedence with Friendster, which had been out sure. for you know like a, a decade or so earlier, right? And so there's a whole notion of like copycats and you know like how like innovation. You could even say innovation is overrated and that you know, it's about effective copying and remixing that makes things matter. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one that's, you know, we could go down that path. But the other is it's interest, it's a, I, I got interested in the internet because of this idea of common space peer production and like the sort of potential, like radical things that can happen with an open source system, like places where people are contributing to the collective good just so that they can look cool or like, you know, be like more popular than, than someone else in there. In their so the Wikipedia like, GitHubs of the world kind the, of thing? Wikipedia awards are all about, you know, I mean, even you can say academia is like this. People might be sure. emotionally driven by some petty rivalry with like the guy who they think is subtly wrong about the important area that they're studying. But, you know, it ends up being published now. It's more obvious in open source how that contributes to the commons because there's like billions and billions of dollars of like code infrastructure that you and I both use that is 
financially subsidized by the fact that people do it so that they can have a better resume for their job. They do it because they want to, but they're also getting paid by you know corporations to do this stuff. Um, but it is one of these places where someone has, uh, they might have a zero sum competition, like some might not, but like, um, but they might just be like interested in being the best and you know showing off and and having a uh, not a material scarcity but like a, a social or a relative one and having the byproduct be this massive expansion of the commons um the flip side of this so that's my my it's one of the amazing things about open source the flip side of it is could you imagine if facebook was a protocol you know when zuck turned off uh what was it like turned off all the crazy social games you know like and pissed off zynga and like zynga at the time was like 10 percent of you know like it was, it was, it was already 10%. Like both traffic and revenue. Paid. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I but think it was, it was a, I think it was like a dramatic, like if you look back at the Facebook IPO um, and one of the uh, Zynga founders is an investor in Lambda. So I've talked about this a little bit, like Facebook's revenue was dramatically games driven for a long time. Yep. Um, and like it was the, it, the thing about having a hierarchical leadership structure, right? I mean, there's also something where, I think the A16Z guys were right that there's uh, a legitimacy that founders bring that they can actually like do radical changes because they have, you know, the mandate of heaven from having birthed the thing into reality. Um, yeah. Like, but yeah, like, like, can you imagine, I don't know, the Ethereum community or like the blockchain, like the Bitcoin people like turning off Zynga because it's a worse user experience and suddenly you've got all these, you know, stakeholders who were, like was it marcus pinker or uh you know like the zynga founders like of course those would have been major facebook coin holders and they would have had you know they would have been screaming and hollering and yeah like i can't yeah. imagine a decentralized community making those kinds of changes so for better or for worse there are advantages to different kinds of structures well it's even interesting i mean within crypto right you have you have bitcoin um which you know who knows who satoshi is i'm sure you have a theory um, but you know, we, we don't know who's, at least there's not a broadly acknowledged individual. There's not consensus by the name on that, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas Ethereum, it's clearly Vitalik. And like, I think it's, I think it's Algor. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but even within those two different protocols, right their 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 governance is very different. And Vitalik yeah. tries to be democratic to the extent that he can, but like, when Vitalik speaks, everybody listens. Yeah. Um, whereas when Craig Wright speaks, not so much, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. or yeah. when whoever, I don't know who, who the equivalent. I of, mean, it's interesting because I, you know, I, I can't even think of a, a name that would be even an order within an order of magnitude in terms of influence on the community, right? So, but right. I'm not as I'm not as deeply enmeshed in I huddle like the best of us, but you know, um, <laughs> like that's it. Um, but yeah. yeah, so yeah, where do you want to, where do you want to take this? What what are your? Uh... Yeah, so I mean, we we had a we had a kind of fork in the road where we we talked a little bit about organizational structures and how they affect the commons and and all that stuff. Um, I also am interested in talking about the you know you mentioned earlier the fact that you know not ever not anybody contains all of the information and that you know you couldn't possibly contain all the skill sets. And how that, I mean, about 
us specifically and you know you specifically like that is very real being a founder right yeah because you are bringing on people who are experts in their domain that you will never understand and it you know it has taken them a lifetime to understand that um i think that's probably the most difficult aspect of like early stage founding when you move from being um for lack of a better term, an an IC or an individual contributor to a manager, which is something that feels foreign to most founders. Like, you know, you didn't start a company to be a manager. Um, But that, that's a difficult transition and people make it so differently. And yeah, yeah, I'd love to, and I know, you know, obviously from talking to you that you've run through a lot of issues with that and it's hard yeah and i, yeah. I want to hear how you think about I, that i mean it's interesting that you say that because um uh i almost had the opposite experience of what you just described it, interesting because the fir- the like 2007 era right like um you know i wasn't that interested in the internet like around like 2006 2007 um, I had been sort of an anarcho primitivist. I thought, you know, my future was going to be hanging out in like, you know, the, the rainforest, uh, trying to like identify rare plants that could be used for, I don't know. Yeah. Like, like sure. drug discovery and things like Some that. Like pharmaceutical I was, I, I, I was, I was interested. Yeah. yeah. I, but I was, uh, I was interested in ethnobotany and I was interested in culture and these things, but I was like pretty anti-modernist and I was, you know, uh, not particularly interested in technology until I got interested in this whole open source thing. And I, I saw parallels with that and like community organizing and all sorts of, like I saw this crazy, like I saw, you know, a future that I could believe in that I would, that I was like, that's worth working towards. Um, but my first startup, I, you know, I was like having to fill in while running the company, what like, what was front end and back end? Like, how does a website get delivered? <laughs> like, like, is it, it's a system of tubes. Like what is going on here? Like, I didn't know anything. Right. And so I had to build a team and, you know, like I had no idea how to market, how to price, how to brand, how to like design, how to recruit, how to manage like or or how to build things. And, um, we did okay, you know, for like, uh, like a, a couple guys out of UMass and like for being 19 and not having known about the internet, like it was, you know, um, I mean, for those that don't know, like, you're acquired by AOL, like was a, was a solid acquisition. Wasn't like if, if a I mean, startup a soft landing. started by someone who doesn't know what they're doing, doesn't go to zero, that's a win, right? Like that's for a sure. huge win. For yeah. sure. It felt like a like existential failure for me because the original idea of, you know, the first company was called Localocracy and it was basically to build a, uh, to figure out like what would be, if you were to run a, a town, if you were to run a government on Wikipedia and you were to effectively manage the attention of, um, like it, it was a, it was a political revolution in like hidden inside. So, someone joked on that, like, uh, I mean, they were definitely trying to trying to trying to give a dig at me, and they were like um, saying that Rome is like a a cult with a thin veneer of a uh, a software startup in front of it. Like mm-hmm. my first company was very much trying to be a political revolution with a thin veneer of a software startup in front of it. Like mm-hmm. it was in, like you know, I 
was on the fence about whether to incorporate as a company the whole time. Like I was like, I didn't know whether to, the original idea was like, oh, we'll like figure out how to build this thing. And then we'll I'll like go door to door and run for mayor of some town. And then I'll hand over the town to the people. I was like, Bane, like the people, like, um, but yeah, uh, I've been interested in this like collective intelligence thing for a long time. And the first one t- totally failed, like having the, having a small, you know, acquisition, like it, and, and particularly because post acquisition, we weren't able to do the thing that we had hoped to be able to do inside of AOL. Um, it felt like a total failure. And, you know, I felt like for the, the, like Rome is in a, a substantial way, a continuation of like the mission of the first one was figure out how to help people think together and then take action together faster and have it be a smart kind of thinking and acting and figure out how to create this like information commons that like, you know, like builds a map of what is known about the world and helps us, you know, change it in effective ways. Um, uh, yeah, I, I took like, I don't know, it was, it was close to eight years between when I left AOL and when Rome went public and like a huge amount of that time was spent trying to figure out like doing things that didn't scale and trying to backfill all this information, like, like create a, I dropped out of, of university at undergrad, but you know, I was like, what would a, what would a master's program look like? that was like tuned for you know the thing i'm trying to do and 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 had all the structures that were that would that are helpful and of peers and of accountability and that kind of thing i did all that kind of stuff in those eight years and had to learn everything like how to fundraise properly because i was pretty bad at that the first time how to you know recruit how to market how to like design i like had you know had never touched figma or sketch or anything like that you know and uh and i went really deep on a bunch of technical subjects and tried to figure out how to model this problem. So um, uh, that, yeah, I mean, it's a startup is an interdisciplinary research effort. You have to learn, like you have to learn everything <laughs> when it's just you, like the, in general, every, every role at Rome I did first. And even yeah. now, you know, when we've been trying to hire for roles that there isn't a title that makes sense for this thing. Like the thing that we're trying to hire people to do has not been done before. Um, as you know, at least in the normal startup. Um, and so I have to also figure out what the role even looks like and can I do it? And then can I hire somebody who's better than me at that thing? So yeah, it's, it's tricky. Um, I don't remember where, yeah, but, but then you obviously want to be able to incorporate experts into these things and the experts are not going to have the context of eight years of thinking about the holistic system and like how everything fits together. Um, and they're going to expect a lot more structure, uh, than, you know, you have like for the first three years of Rome, it was just me and Josh and we lived together and spent every waking minute together. So all of this context was able to transfer via osmosis shifting yeah. then to, you know, being like 10 people on six continents is uh, pretty, pretty wild. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. Where do you want to, where do you want to go with that? No, I, I think that that's really interesting. I, um, 10 people on six continents. First of all, wow. <laughs> that's I don't actually yeah. know that this is a good idea either, right? I'm like, sure. currently, I mean, part of the reason we moved to Utah was so that we could have a place that could, um, you know, beckon people, like, you know, like, you know Statue of Liberty style, like, come all in. And Coming so now, yeah. yeah, now we have, uh, we have reconsolidated. And so we're, you know, um, we're now four people 
like in this house, living in the house together, right? So mm-hmm. like we've kind of gone back to this like um, highly like like yeah, and and we're starting to do a lot more to just try and like allow some of the the high context stuff that isn't just things that are going to happen that, that don't make a ton of sense to happen asynchronously um, or, you know, through text or like, like that sort of informal vibe transmission. Um, yeah. You know, like, it's like, I've realized even if it's the middle of somebody's work day, you know, for them to join us from like 11 PM to 1 AM and we're just hanging out, like occasionally that definitely makes sense so that people can feel incorporated into the, the, yeah, the structure of it. But anyways, yeah, there's there's a lot of, I've got a lot of opinions, um, but partially it's, you know, like mostly from the things that didn't work, but also, yeah, also some theory and some things that are kind of working now. What what didn't work? I mean, what doesn't work about, uh, th- there are certain things I think get taken for granted um, that I, that, that seem sort of obviously wrong to me, right? One is like, um, uh, I, I can, I, I, I'm tempted to like take a second and go and pull these quotes up, but like, um, with knowledge work, the notion of how you manage your attention, which is a massive task, especially if you're doing complex things, right. Um, you know, essentially got like completely punted to individuals like there was there would be no sort of sense of like here's how you should manage your time and here's how you should manage your to-do list or like any like they're they're it became sort of uh taken for granted that like it was the burden of attention allocation and the burden of like knowing where to find things and knowing like having different strategies for how to schedule your life and those things should all be shifted down to the individual contributor um, and it could be, and they, they should be completely ad hoc systems. I feel like that is something that, you know, um, uh, I love Peter Drucker's like the effective executive, like, you know, the first person, if you're going to manage anybody is being able to manage yourself. Like, I think there's, there's great things, we, you know, but, um, but I think that's actually a huge burden. And I think that a lot of the reason that, you know, as you grow, the output per person falls dramatically because there's so much time spent in coordination. There's so much time of like people talking to other people to figure out like, like it, the muddle of it um, is like horrendous. Like it's, there's no way that, you know, I, I've talked to, to other founders that were basically saying like, you should expect this like, um, like logarithmic curve in terms of output or like, you know, you should expect oh, absolutely. that. Like, yeah. but that I don't think has to be correct. I actually just think that this is the, like fundamentally, I think that you could have a, and this is why I was, I was citing the Nielsen stuff, right? Is that like, if you have a system that is able to effectively allocate people's attention, you should be able to allow like the right person matches to the right problem at the right time and have sort of designed serendipity and spontaneity and a lot more fluidness than like the fact that we manage roadmaps, quote unquote roadmaps, like like we're farmers, like there's some sort of, you know, like, like the reason it's the mythical man month problem, like the reason you can't engineers are are notoriously bad at predicting how long it takes them to solve stuff is because if you knew how to do it, like, like you can't price in the unknown unknowns and the known unknowns even like you have no idea for, for many problems. You can't put a deadline on insight. And so, um, uh, it actually is just 
literally impossible. You can have a, a sense of like, I, I feel like we're pretty close to here. I feel like we're like, like very far from here. I feel like these things are prerequisites to this, but you know, you're going to be wrong almost all the time because you don't, you're, you're just dealing with things that are fully like uncertain. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I feel like there's a lot it of sounds conventional like- wisdom that where it's, it's just normal and good for every subsequent person to like add to the, the weight of the organization. I feel like, you know, the whole point of, of, uh, hypermedia tools. I mean, this we'll, we'll get, I talk about Rome is a, um, we're trying to build Excel for thought, you know, and by that, I mean, we're trying to build a programming language for thinking in and for structuring your own attention and for structuring attention amongst a group of other people to solve really hard problems. Um, and trying to build a programming language for thinking is very different from building a normal programming language, but also very similar. Um, but, but the like, uh, well, and I, that's that's a whole rabbit hole to go down. But um, yes, yeah, so, so, so what, it sounds what like the original question. <laughs> no, one of your one of your base hypotheses is that the assumption, you know, so you refer to the mythical man month, which is basically, you know, if you have one engineer, it takes X amount of time. And there's the theory that if you add two engineers, it will now take half the time that is totally wrong and never ends up being the case. But it yeah, sounds I mean, like we don't try to do this it, with babies, it actually right? you know, slows down you dramatically as you add more engineers to a problem effectively. Yeah, you, you, um, you can't you can't distribute a baby across nine wombs. Sure. You know, and <laughs> sure. Have, it, have it be born in a month, right? Like, it, like, so there are some places where but I also think that you, you can well, I'll, I'll pull up this other Nielsen quote that I, I love, which is modularizing the collaboration. That is figuring out ways to split up the overall task into smaller subtasks that can be attacked independently or nearly independently, um, reduces the barrier for new people and broadens the range of available expertise. It's difficult to achieve, requires a conscious, relentless commitment, and requires a, a relentless, conscious commitment on the part of the participants. Um, so to put words in your mouth, you're your thesis or theory is that given the right infrastructure, given the right thinking language, given the right tooling, you at least at a minimum would not slow down as much as companies generally do. And you could keep, I mean, maybe there is still a logarithmic function, but it's either a higher slope or it's less of a logarithmic function, or maybe it's linear, but you're Dude, I, you're I, saying, want, I want, I, I'm hoping to get it like, something that is better than linear in terms of you think it's right you think it's exponential at the end of the day i think i don't know if you can get exponential but i do think so so like um you know all right let me i'll throw another few quotes at you that aren't even mine right uh which is like offline if someone speaks with you when you're tired and cranky you may not understand what they said online you can read and reread at your leisure when you're alert and enthused offline it can take months to track down a new collaborator with expertise that complements your own in just the right way um the big advantage of online collaboration over offline collaboration are the, are in scale and cognitive diversity. And by using a carefully designed architecture, of this is the last one. Um, and you know, the prerequisite to all this is people being able to build on earlier work, people being able to reuse it. Those are two different things, right? Building on and reusing are are, are different. But like, here's the sort of thesis of you know, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because you know. Plenty of people in the in our user community, I see, are, are like I've seen folks concerned that the the multiplayer focus that we have is like 
not going to be helpful for them as an individual. And like, I think this is just a misconception because you are, whether you're reading a bunch of material or, and, and we all, ideas don't happen inside a person, right? Ideas happen in an, a network. That network might be all the stuff that you're reading and consuming, um, but those are also collaborators and your past and future self are collaborators that you're trying to coordinate with, right? Um, so hmm. I, and like, yeah, um, and, and I can get more in all, all, a lot of the features of Rome right now, um, well, they, they were cludged or, or hacked together to try to help me program my own attention and like be able to, to deal with more nebulous problems. And But here's the thesis, right? By using a carefully designed architecture of attention, online tools enable collaborations to involve far more people than is practical in offline conversation, right? And this is where like Zoom is not remote work, right? Um, at all. Right. Like Zoom is just a worse meeting where you have worse eye contact. Um, you know, this is one of the reasons that almost all of our all hands meetings, we try to stay almost entirely in the room because it's not about, except for the like high, uh, and, and this is also why we use a ton of like video recording stuff from our meetings. And we do have a lot of conversations. There's way more rich information in terms of emotional expressiveness, like figuring out where somebody's actually at. We're dealing with humans, right? Humans have emotions mm -hmm. and feelings and prior frames and like ways of making meaning out of their individual observations. Those are tricky, like really tricky. Um, that's why we, we hire so many people from cults, um, like actual, you know, <laughs> like good, like there exists good like cults. Full-blown cults. Like yeah. full-blown full blown collaboration cults, I, I would say. There's like, I've only encountered two and I've hired people from both of them. Um, uh, but like, um, yeah, uh, but yeah, that, I mean, that's this idea that with the right architecture of attention, you can have, you know, a wider set of people whose expertise you're drawing from, you're able to give them something where it's a much more engaging problem set, right? Because they're, they're facing problems that they have enough knowledge of that they could actually solve. Ideally, if you've got a, you know, the infrastructure set up properly, all the inputs that they're going to need are in one place, right? And like they're creating an output that is going to be useful, even if it's not picked up immediately. They don't have to have a two-hour meeting with every subsequent person who like is going to try to build off their work or take their thing and integrate it in with something else. Um, it's hard to design these kinds of human systems. It requires thinking and writing and you know doing work in a very very different way. But um, the upside is I, like, and I we can we can talk more about this and your experience with like running Lambda School and like running it both as a school and as a company, the problem I'm generally trying to solve as a manager is what is the sort of sweet spot where, um, you, you know, the idea of deliberate practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like for anyone listening, deliberate practice is like, if you want to get really good at guitar, you don't spend all the time continuing to play the part of the songs that, you know, you like focus on the, the like, the, the solo that you can't quite master. Like you like do the thing over and over again that is like right at the edge of your competency and that's how you're gonna level up the fastest, right? And so because I actually like, I don't know, I prefer to work with people I actually care about. <laughs> like that's the only, I don't know, I, I have to see them all the time. I prefer to have people I actually care about like in my uh, intimate relations and like, you know, you want to help them develop and also they're going to do their best work when they are like fully engaged. So the challenge as a, as a engineering manager or as a, as a manager of any kind of talent is what's 
what problem is useful for the company right now that's right at the edge of this person's capability that's going to develop them as a person it's going to keep them highly engaged and also it's useful for us and also like you know it like all of the skills that are going to be needed to ship this thing out are here like we actually like we can make progress on this and you know and you you're trying to coordinate that with a bunch of people um, like a, with different skills and you know different levels of engagement and motivation. So it is a, like roadmaps should always be extremely dynamic because it's going to be based on how quickly are there, is talent developing in your company, right? How good are you at assessing it even? Like how good is your hiring process and how good is your, like, do I think this is also why it's a lot easier for managers to manage if they know the domain really well. Um, like you can't, it's really hard for, to have a non-technical engineering manager because you can't, you, you're not going to be able to, you're going to end up just like playing favorites with like who gets interesting projects or like it's going to be, it's going to become all sorts of nonsense politics instead of, you know, ideally the relationship is something like a, like a sports coach or a tutor where it's like, okay, this problem is one that I think you can solve and it's going to be challenging and you will learn as you do it. And also it will be great for the company, right? Like that's, 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 a, that's, so a, that's, I, a, that's a hard routing problem. But you're yeah, a router. Super As a manager, you are a router. The, the one thing that you you mentioned that I found surprising, and I, I don't know if it's right or wrong, um, but that I wouldn't that doesn't like align with my mental model mm-hmm. is the expectation that everyone is working on a problem that is at the edge of their capacity, and therefore everybody is doing something that's deliberate practice. I generally speaking optimize for i mean to the extent possible like you know exactly how to do this thing and you're just gonna come hammer it out and then we'll find something else for you to work on like i mean i've also sometimes you got to do that too because there's something where it's like like it does it does depend right um the challenge is if you give i've had i've had situations with people i manage where um they came in and they had some expertise they brought some new expertise to the company that like you know i didn't have or like the the existing team at the time didn't have and so i was like here's a bunch of things that should be pretty easy for you because you know how to do this and they're super important because we haven't been able to do them for a while because we haven't had somebody who knew how to do this and like and maybe this is a cultural thing of just you know like what people's expectations are especially if they're they're very good um as soon as they got bored their morale fell they like like it became extremely difficult to work with them and they started phoning it in on problems that like they could have knocked out of the park with like a little if they were actually putting focused energy on it but they like were way like performing way below what my expectations of their abilities were and you know like like that's that's your suspicion is because because they're bored because they're so good at the thing that they're supposed to do that it's not interesting they're they're phoning it in they're not they're not they're not paying attention and like you know this is this is a craft right it's like if you if you phone it in you're phoning it in and like you're gonna you you might uh yeah like um at least yeah you you can end up doing worse than you are capable of doing um because you you know and now I think this is also where like culture matters a ton because if people are taking the, like if people really care about the mission and they understand how the thing they're doing can relate to the mission, which is extremely hard to transmit in like a one hour a week call, 
when your sure. previous background is that the people are like hearing you on podcast calls in the house and like you guys are talking about it all day. Like when Josh and I first moved to the Bay Area together, we rented a room in a, in a house that had a bunch of kids and one of the, like the two-year-old boy like identified us as a single entity. He would refer to Connor Josh because we like entered the room and left together. And like, we were just sort of like, because we were just always, we were sharing a single bedroom in this house and like taking turns who slept on the floor um, and just working all the time. And so like that level of context over years is extremely hard to transmit to someone who's brand new, who like is extremely confused about how, why we're doing things different than every other startup they've ever heard of or like their expectation. They've never worked at a, a real startup before. They've like only worked at a company sure. that's like already got a hundred people. Um, and you know, it's going to be hard to transmit that kind of stuff in an hour or a week. Right. Especially when you're also trying to fit all of this other stuff into that hour. Right. So yeah. Um, Fascinating. So yeah, super interesting. I read, I think it was a tweet actually from, uh, Delian, who's at Founders Fund slash Varda space that I thought was like, it made me think a lot. Um, and it was something along the lines of basically once you hit a certain level of number of employees, I can't remember how many it was, it was 50 or a hundred or something like yeah. you are done trying to fix or get better at something. And you should just assume that if something is bad, it will never improve. I yeah. thought that was fascinating because I like, I never thought of it that way. But as I look through, you know, the companies that I've worked at, the companies I've invested in, like it was a hundred percent true. And I don't know if that's why because... this year was crazy for me. Cause I was just like, I noticed we, we grew slowly compared to every other startup and <laughs> way too fast compared to where, like, because the thing that we're trying to do is both like, uh, it builds on and like necessarily is an iterative improvement in a sense on what we have built so far. But like, like it, we do not have product market fit in this, like until we have a true collective intelligence in our company where we can add employees and have at least linear growth and output for me. Right. My, my mental model is like, um, and so, you know, product market fit involves using Rome as a programming language for thought. Like, and, you know, in order to, like, it, it involves this meta recursive structure of like, we, we will know when we have true product market fit because like, we know how to use the tool and we have built all, we have finished building all of the capacities that the tool needs in order for us to actually, for one, like there's no way we will ever be using Slack. Right now we have a, a Rome Slack integration that is a, a hacky sort of starting point, but like, like it is the operating system for how we think together, right? And so for us, like that is what product market fit looks like. That is the goal. And, you know, we will be able to tell that we are making progress towards the goal in terms of our, you know, uh, tracking our ability to continuously deliver value to the existing users, right? But like, you know, those are two, uh, um, we're, we're, we are kind of doing two things at the same time, right? One is to keep us grounded in yeah. reality, which is like, are we actually getting smarter as a group? And so we like try and ship things for both features we need to think better together and features that we think will just benefit all the users like you who need, you know, a mobile app, right? And like, mm -hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, like the, the question is like, like for us, we will know that we have 
we look like a product that everyone would expect has just like product market fit. And now it's just about doing obvious stuff, which is like listening to users all the time. And like, you know, like it's all about like maintaining this sort of like death march or like, you know, like, like this, the same pace that we had over the last year. Right. Um, but I think it's actually very different. I think that like, and that, that introduces it a whole other weird set of things of like, you're trying to, you're trying to grow an organization where, uh, you're inventing a bunch of process. <laughs> like you're, you're inventing like the, I mean, not just the tool itself, but how you use the tool. You're trying to simultaneously, as you build Rome, reinvent Rome such that your company uses Rome to be a better company, right? Like it's, it's a very, but it's also not that right. different. It's like, it's Again, like a this, re recursive problem to some extent, right? It is like, a recursive problem. Yes. And it's, it's the same, it's the same structure that, Douglas Engelbart had, he's most known for inventing the mouse and, you know, but in our circles, he's known for the mother of all demos, which was, you know, collaborative, like intelligence augmentation in like, you know, 1968 that we still haven't matched with Zoom and all the other shit. Like we're still not doing all the stuff they were doing in the demo. Um, Rome yeah. still even isn't doing everything that was done in the demo, you know, like, yeah, like he talks about human systems and tool systems, right? Like, so here's another example. Um, uh, one claim I, I accept an assumption that I, I hold a high degree of, of certainty for is that people do their best creative work when they have a degree of psychological safety, but also high standards, right? Or like, and these two things are not in conflict, you know, like you, you hear folks talk about like what it was like to be on a team with Michael Jordan and just the intensity of the practices, but also there's a, like, like he wasn't out there trying to like screw over the individuals that were there, right? He wasn't trying right. to like, respect like, for there was a respect. what he was doing for sure. Right. And so, you know, um, figuring out how to build psychological safety and also figuring out like the technical skill of like giving a good performance review, like all, but also like the technical skill of having a frame when folks come in that you can, that, here we are hard on ideas and soft on people. We expect you to be wrong a ton. We want you to be wrong a ton. And we also want you to show your thinking process and search for like meta patterns in your thinking process and like be very aware of what you are and are not good at and have it be a very transparent thing, what people are and are not good at and have it be okay for people not to be great at things. Like that's not even a norm, like, like people are, there's a great thread um, uh, that uh, I, I mean, I, I could pull it up of like, all of the anti lessons of schooling, <laughs> like of like, mm -hmm. you can't copying off of other people is cheating. Um, you know, like uh, being wrong will get you punished. Like contradicting the teacher is not acceptable. Like all of these norms that even if we think we've gotten rid of them, we were still like, you know, six hours a day or eight hours a day or whatever, like in Pretty ingrained for 18 years, right? Like, Figuring yeah. out how do you set up a culture that doesn't do those things is damn hard. In addition to like trying to build a tool that will all like, you know, yeah, like allow us to figure out where is information flowing in the company, where is it bottlenecking, who knows who knows what, you know, um, that kind of stuff. So, and we've made a bunch of mistakes already. It's been it's been wild the number of mistakes I was able to make this year. <laughs> like. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's fascinating. But, I mean, I, so yeah, I, th but, I think a lot about, about company culture now in a way that I didn't when I was just a founder, I was like, uh, well, when I was like a, when 
Lambda School was a very small company, right? Um, when I was moving from being an IC to starting to manage to some extent, it was just like, I need a person to do X. There's a person who can do X. They come highly regarded, plug them in. And now I need to figure out how, like, how hands-on I need to be with each person. Like, do I, you know, am I supposed to be looking over their shoulder and second guessing them or do they want me to be step away or do like, you know, how much do they need my affirmation versus my criticism versus like, you know, and that, there's that aspect. And there's of also, there's also knowing yourself too, right? So for instance, totally. like if, if it turns out that you've hired a ton of people who need your affirmation and you like are completely drained not by giving people affirmation. affirmation. Yeah. Right. It's like, like I, um, this was, uh, you know, advice I actually got from talking with Naval, right. Um, which, which was mind blowing for me, which was like, you know, because I think, uh, one of the challenges I've had is I can see very clearly all my faults. I'm like super like, and Rome, <laughs> like, so, so actually first to just touch on a, a, a thing you said before of like how we are both building the tool and like, trying to design the organization to use this tool and like have this be this meta thing. That's actually completely normal um, because I've been doing that exact, like I had three versions of a Rome system before Rome, before I like had any of the code that's in Rome right now, right? I had like hacked, you know, like, like made mods to, you know, OmniGraffle first and then like notational velocity. And then I used an Emacs system that I had made and like, like, and each one of them got me a deeper understanding of what the tool like the limitations of of the like eight different pieces of software and the sort of you know the cake i was baking had a, an ingredient which was software and the other ingredient was what were my habits around how to use that software like where did i put things totally. what were the conventions i had for how i wrote about what did i choose to write about when did i choose to write about it um all of those things were like mutually developed iteratively over time. And it was crazy because like, as I started building that system, I went from being a completely incapable of getting anything done in my day-to-day -day basis, like ADHD guy that was just like living in a van and going for runs and reading cognitive science papers and shit, but like nothing was happening in my life to like, as I started getting into a system that had a um, recursive self-improvement loop, I was actually able to chip and like learn very fast the things i needed to learn in order to like falsify some hypotheses and ship stuff so and we've been doing that with me and josh for how we use room together like you know the major milestone was when i actually got josh to use room <laughs> like because there was a good <laughs> there was a good there was a good like six months or a year and maybe it was a year where like he we weren't taking notes together like we were not yet using it collaboratively um, and we weren't working out any sort of system of like how to use it so that we could find each other's thinking and build off of it. You know, we were able to get by that because we were in the same house, but like, you know, practice like you play dog food, like that kind of thing. So yeah. I do think, I do think it's possible, but I also think like, yeah, um, uh, like to touch on something that, that you were saying earlier, um, you know, there's some things you're good at. And you don't get to replace yourself. Like behavior change is possible. It's also extremely costly, like extremely like taxing on your attention to modify any aspect of your behavior, right? I'm lucky that I've been able to go from like quitting cigarettes to just being on like nicotine patches constantly, right? Like that was like really hard this year. And also I'm trying to like completely change, you know, how I deliver feedback to people. Like there is a sense in which, uh, 
like you do want to change yourself um, when there are places where you see there's like systematic problems, right? If you walk down the street and meet an asshole, you might've met an asshole. If you walk down the street and meet 20 assholes, you're probably the asshole. So like, um, you know, you do want to do it sometimes, but you want to do it rarely and you can't replace yourself. So like finding people that work well with you is a, uh, it's, it's a lot better <laughs> to do it that way, right? You can't replace the founders. Um, I mean, some companies you can, if they're just a clone or something like that, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's super interesting. And I also think like, I think about the different, I'm not going to say who who gave me this mental model, but um, because they would not want to be outed like that. But um, the the allegation was that Twitter somehow takes A plus players and produces like a B minus product and outcome, whereas Amazon takes like B players. And no offense to anybody at Amazon, love all of you. I like, heard this mental model, take- and this was C. You're saying B minus. You're being. You're like it's amazing <laughs> the way that you are. Like you're already making this less extreme, but like someone out there thinks that there's really talented people at Twitter doing garbage work, and like very mediocre people at Amazon doing amazing work. Yeah, right? and they're yeah, yeah, and the, the thesis for that was more around like going back to and if you read working backwards there's actually a fascinating you know just they they go in depth i can't believe they were able to publish that book i'm i'm shocked about like how exactly amazon works and how i mean if you look at a lot of the most successful companies the the piece that tied them together was that like our our decision making and our work product is not you know presentations or discussions it is code or it is and the way that we communicate is in the product um and you know when when bezos said okay everybody at amazon we are now everything is a microservice and everything has an externally facing api um and in that book the the authors talk about how if there is communication that is evidence that something within the product is broken yeah um which completely fascinating to me because that is not the way that most companies operate and the the assumption that the communication that happens in the product is more important than like hey let's make sure that we all get on the same page and collaborate it the the throughput that that enables is orders of magnitude higher than you know if you're an mba management consultant putting together a bunch of pitch decks and saying here's what you should do and I, I noticed that at Lambda School in the early days when we didn't have a strong product culture and it was people trying to tell people to change their behavior or change what they're doing. And the, the, the lossiness of that, for lack of a better word, is just fascinating versus like when it's actually a product and you can just change a product and ship a product. I think that's a, an underrated aspect of why software is so powerful. Like... If you're if you're changing a product, well, use use the Git flow as an example, right? There are agreed upon there there is an agreed upon production, there is an agreed upon development stage. There are agreed upon methodologies through which you can submit a pull request and you know suggest changes to a product, and agreed upon methodologies through which that change is accepted into the product. And once it is accepted, it is part of the product now. And so you don't have to talk about 
you know, what is changing. You just make the change. And w- once it's changed, it's changed for everybody instantly everywhere. And I, it's such a powerful paradigm that I think is drastically underrated. If you talk to logistics people about like, why couldn't Amazon exist pre-software is because the coordination costs of making all the stuff that they make happen, happen, 0% chance you do it without software. Um, I think that's completely fascinating. All right. Well, there is something <laughs> significant when the product is, is the communication internally about the product is the product itself. Right. I think is what you were saying. Yep. And that like, you know, that, yeah, it's a recursive self-improvement. Um, oh man, like next time we talk, I got to talk about Odin and why he's my favorite Norse God. Um, like he is the God of, he is the God of recursive self-improvement and like his mythology is amazing. If, if you view it as a paradigm of round, like sharpening the saw, improving your ability to improve all this other stuff, like Odin's, Odin's the guy. Um, all right. A uh, couple things I'm going to knock out quick. So one, like it was fascinating to learn that Obama's way of, um, making decisions was this, uh, the, the, the decision brief setup. Um, basically, like Obama was a night owl, and uh, like, but he optimized the information flow of like all of the bureaucracy of the White House to like be designed in a way that was actionable and sort of like, like, essentially maximize the return on attention of him, right? Um, and I, I don't think this was even invented by him. I think it was something that like they were there was this practice was existed at the White House. So the, the decision memo is one page and there is a decision at the end of it and it's got all the context you know that his team thinks he needs for that one page and at the end it says yes no let's discuss and he it's he he turns a like nuanced complicated problem that like like all of this all the framing of the decision all the nebulous work of problem solving is actually being outsourced to his team because he has to you know run the whole country and and also like yeah, the there's a lot going the on they, and by the time a decision gets to obama's desk uh it's because nobody else wanted to make it right like right. um you know often that is the, the case when you're leading an organization is there are going to be places where you're making trade-offs against between your values like like you know we are choosing between a rock and a hard place and we just have to pick one and someone is going to be you know holding the holding the buck so but yeah, um, so the optimization of inf- information flow for the leader or the decision maker, like that matters. I was thinking about mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I love about Amazon is the idea that in order to hold a meeting, you have to have written in, not as a presentation or like a PowerPoint, but a paper of like, yeah. this is why we are having the meeting. This is what the expected outcomes are. Like, this is the decision to be made. Or what, I don't know. I actually remember the, or know that all the details of the structure of those documents, but like that I think is one of those, they say like, you know, the right mental models worth like a thousand IQ points. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, when you've got the team itself has mental models, right? The team itself has, has systems and procedures. And if they're really good ones, that's very different from really bad ones. And that's how you can, um, yeah. All right. Last thing I want to say though is like, it, it matters that they work for you too, right? Because I tried to follow all totally. of Amazon's processes when I first read them and like a number of them, I couldn't do myself. It didn't make sense to try to force that into an organization if I'm not going to be able to do it too, right? So in terms of building your company, you have to find uh, 
Bridgewater is one of my favorite examples of a company because they have a 70% attrition rate in the first three months, right? Like only about one out of three people, which is funny because we have about a 70% attrition rate in terms of people who are either fired or, you know, like leave, like, which is actually good if you're learning how to make, you know, a thing. Uh, so anyways, you awesome. got to run. I, I got to jump. Awesome. I'll talk to you yeah, soon. We'll, Peace. We'll chat later.